Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. hard to define when something's a weapon and something's not dual purpose rather than dual use and also the biggest threats are not in space we're not talking about nukes in space that's the one thing the outer space treaty um prohibits is the placement of nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction in space the biggest threats are ground-based you're listening to the national security podcast the show that brings you expert analysis insights and opinion on the national security challenges facing australia and the indo-pacific Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Dr. Danielle Island Piper. I'm an Associate Professor here at the National Security College. Today's podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and to that end, I pay my respects to Elders past and present. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Cassandra Steer, who is the Deputy Director. Uh, of Mission Specialist at the ANU Institute of Space, also known as InSpace. Rather than uh, me read Cassandra's very impressive um, biography and also remind everyone that the Cassandra of ancient Greece was always right but nobody listened to her, (laughs) I'll I'll ask you, Cassandra, as our very own local space prophet, um, just if you don't mind sharing a little bit of your career background and um, how you landed in space, if, if you'll forgive the pun. Yes. So listen up, even if you don't believe what I'm prophesying. Prophesizing? Um, so uh, my background is public international law, um, and when I did my PhD it was international criminal law, so I was very interested in um, uh, how the law responds to warfare, how we can hold individuals responsible when there's mass atrocity, um, comparative law. You know, I was working in different languages and really interested in how we have different perspectives on the law in different parts of the world, um, being based in Europe, Australia, and then later in North America. Um, but when I was based in the Netherlands, it, I felt like international criminal law was a very saturated field. That's where all the tribunals are. Everyone's a specialist. Um, but And I was just kind of curious what warfare and technology and warfare is doing to all of those questions about responsibility. And so I was speaking to a lot of military lawyers who started pointing me to space law and it was not something I had ever thought about or considered. I was not someone who grew up, you know, gazing at the stars and wishing I could be have a space career necessarily. Um, but when I started to read about it and investigate it and understand more about it, I realised this is where it's at. Um, in much the same way that sort of 10 years ago everyone got interested in cyber because cyberspace and our interactions with cyber are so permeating in every part of our everyday lives as well as national security and international security. That's what space is. And so I've become totally passionate and obsessed with uh, with space, with space security, with space sustainability, um, diversity in the space sector. Uh, and there aren't many people doing space policy and space law and space governance. I mean, globally, there are communities of people who really are at the forefront. There's a lot going on at the UN. So there are diplomats in various countries <clears throat> who have the um, the resources to really put people onto those issues. Um, but I think in our region, in the Asia-Pacific, 
Japan and Korea are very strong in it. But, you know, New Zealand and Australia are really sort of just getting started in terms of how we think about ourselves as space actors and parts of the space sector. And so there's a real need for the policy thinkers and the governance thinkers and the security thinkers and the law thinkers to be turning their attention to space. So that's one of my kind of um, missions as well is to expand that knowledge base in Australia. Yeah, wonderful. And and we've spoken before, Cassandra, about the irony of that given Australia's uh, strategic geographic location and its um, usefulness of our geography and our, our land for accessing space and our potential to actually be a really significant space actor and to engage in space diplomacy. So I guess that leads ni- nicely into um, our, our next topic, which is that the consequences for space are sort of obvious in a way when we think about remote sensing technologies. But of course, there are very human aspects to space as well. It's not only the wow factor, but it's a means to so many ends in terms of delivery of humanitarian aid and health and education and so forth. So we've got this environment up there that's essentially dual use in the sense that it's both civilian and military. I wondered if you could sort of speak to that and what the significance of that um, dual use environment is for the work that you're doing and how Australia ought to be thinking about space from a security perspective. Yeah, so I think it's helpful to think about space systems as not only satellites and spacecrafts up in space, the space segment is one of four segments. So you've got what's in space, you've got the ground segment, which is um, you know, where a satellite is operated from or where it's receiving the data. Every satellite has to send its data or information down to Earth. So you've got the ground station. Then you've got the link between them. So that's usually radio frequency. Um, we're looking into um, how we can use optics and quantum eventually. Um But then the fourth segment is humans. So we are the users, the operators, the designers. We're also the, you know, we are the end users who are dependent on it. So you mentioned humanitarian applications. I mean, we use space many, many times a day without even thinking about it when you're checking what the weather is and what you're going to wear, when you're looking um, to navigate somewhere, to to meet someone for coffee or, you know, global shipping and aviation navigation. Um, We use it to track data for climate change. 50% of our climate data comes from space and some of it can only come from space. There's no other way to get it. Uh, And that's also then important for island nations who are watching sea levels rise and for, you know, what we do about climate refugees. Um, We use it for search and rescue, for responding to bushfires, um, so there's the kind of the civil human security side of things and then there's the military security side of things. So modern militaries today are thoroughly, thoroughly dependent on space systems, again, for navigation, for weapons deployment, for communications, um, organising and moving their own troops, responding to movements of adversaries' troops. Uh, I mean, a great example is um, last year towards the end of 22, um, Russia uh, used a cyber attack on a US commercial satellite called Viasat, which was providing internet and telecommunications. And they did it as a deliberate attack so that Ukraine um, government and, and forces couldn't communicate with each other, couldn't respond appropriately and couldn't predict what kind of attacks were about to happen on the ground. But in the course of that, civilians are using that exact technology and service from Viasat for their internet and telecommunications. So it cuts civilians off, not only in Ukraine, but in neighbouring countries, because satellites don't just provide services inside a national border. It's it's a geographical area over the planet. Um, and it also had a knock-on effect for a German wind farm that was also relying on those services for its operations. It was taken out for a few days. So 
It's dual use because of the ways in which we use those applications. It's also become more and more dual use in the last, say, 10 years when space has become highly, highly commercialised. There are more commercially owned satellites than government-owned satellites operational. In 2022 alone, I think there were something like 2,000 satellites launched or 2,500 in one year. Uh, almost or more than half of those were owned by one company, by SpaceX. Um, but besides SpaceX, you've got the Viasats, you've got the television broadcasters, you've got the, you know, even even the companies providing critical military-type services might have from that, that very same satellite and that very same set of services, they might have clients who are um, civil side of government or other commercial clients and, and civilians. So it's but through the commercialization of space and through the fact that space technologies have permeated every aspect of our 20th century lives, the space domain is dual use and those applications are dual use. And then if you think about those four segments that I described, that, that has enormous knock-on effects, not only in a conflict situation, but also in kind of, you know, a grey zone situation and also in peacetime, like it just across the full spectrum has, has huge impacts. Yeah, I think those four segments you described is actually a really helpful way of understanding it. And it always strikes me so profoundly the very inherent humanness of space. And yet a lot of our public discourse about space is sort of limited to this sort of strict sort of, you know, science slash military context. But actually, as you say, there's there's so many civilian applications of it above and beyond what I think perhaps your everyday person might understand. So it's a really important conversation to be having, I think. Um, I guess that leads on to another issue. And I'm, I'm reminded of, I had a student once who was former military, and we're talking about war crimes and, and um, behavior within the military. And he, he sort of described his view that actually the military is a microcosm of what happens in human society. So we really shouldn't be surprised when we have difficulties with the way humans behave necessarily in the military, although it's a more, you know, heightened and focused um, environment and there's obviously exacerbating factors. And it strikes me that the same thing could also be said of space in the sense that it's got this wow factor and it's got this vastness factor, but actually it's quite close. I, remember, I can't recall who said it, but somebody articulating how the difference um, between the height difference between Earth and the International Space Station is actually around about the same from Brisbane to Coffs Harbour or something like that. Mm. So space is vast, but it's also really close. Mm. And as you've, you've described all this sort of civilian applications about space, and then if we think about one of the um, really uh, important issues, crucial issues facing society. And it's the way that we think about gender and the safety of women. And we can think about the women, peace and security agenda on earth. And now we've just sort of understood from what you've said that actually there's so much earthly applications in space and vice versa. So therefore it makes sense that the women, peace and security agenda would also be relevant to space. And I wonder if you could just describe briefly what we mean when we talk about women, peace and security and also how that would apply in space. Yeah, and it, just off the back of what you said, though, the, the, I think space technologies are so, like I've said, they're permeating, but they're mundane as well. Like they're just there and we don't think about them. I have a new postdoc who's just joined us um, through the um, ANU School of Regulation and Governance together with InSpace. Uh, his name's Alex DJ and his focus is on, he's, he's written about mundane technologies and what the implications are. And as we've discussed it, we've realised space technologies are not only mundane, they're invisible mm. to us. We just don't think about it. And when we think about the Women, Peace and Security agenda, that aspect also has huge implications. So just to take a quick step back, the Women, Peace and Security agenda has been around for 20 years now. Um, 
first uh, uh, in, in a Beijing uh, conference looking at what are the bigger issues around uh, uh, gender in society over 20 years ago and um, military and conflict was one of the areas. And that then gave birth to UN Security Council Resolution 1325 um, in the year 2000, which looks at the – so w, WPS, Women, Peace and Security, is looking at we need to have greater representation of women in the armed forces and in civilian um, police forces uh, in conflict situations and post-conflict situations and peacekeeping. Can I interrupt you there? Why? Because they need to be able to access local communities of women. And that's in some countries and cultures that is critical because the men, particularly men in uniform, cannot access local women communities. Um, so they can't protect them. They can't understand their needs. Um, it also means that in, in conflict situations where we have gender-based violence, so girls and women are often targeted because they are girls and women, and they're targeted with sexual violence, gender-based violence. Um, it's a highly, highly effective tool when you want to silence half of society. Demoralise a population, yeah. Demoralise them, um, you know, impact their reproductive abilities, um, and sexual violence is just a really powerful weapon. It's a deliberate tactic. Um, so having more women in uniform means that local women have other women to turn to. Uh, they can have, they can access them, understand, you know, what are their issues around being able to access water, for instance. Um, it also means that uh, uh, girls and women in local communities can, you know, it's the old adage of you can't be what you don't see. If you see that, um, there are more opportunities for those girls and women to be doing that locally. But there's also evidence that shows that when you have women not only in those in uniform but also at the negotiating table for um, uh, uh, peace resolutions uh, uh, and arms agreement, arms control agreements um, or armistice, then those agreements take into account the gender requirements of the local communities and those agreements, evidence demonstrates, tend to be more successful and longer-lasting when there are not women involved in those discussions. Um, so there is evidence demonstrating all of this. It's not just because we think it's about ticking a box that we'd like to see more women in these positions. There's actually tangible reasons why this is an important priority. Exactly right. And the other side of the WPS agenda is not only representation, but gender perspectives. Having greater gendered representation, having more women around those tables in uniform means they're bringing in the gender perspectives, but we need to then mainstream those perspectives. So why is it that protecting girls and women from gender-based violence matters? Well, that's also a way to help a community or, or a situation move towards stability. And in post-conflict situations to, you know, some of it is about healing, some of it's about really figuring out what governance and political structures need to be in place to maintain long-lasting long lasting peace, um, so democratic participation and those kinds of things. Um, and we need to mainstream gender perspectives within what um, all militaries are doing, even if we're not in a conflict situation. So Australia doesn't consider itself to be in any kind of post-conflict situation or really currently involved in any grand conflicts around the world. Um, so why should we be including these gender perspectives? Well, because it impacts um, our own, within our, more, our armed forces, our own ability to retain women and talent within the armed forces. Um, it impacts our ability to respond also to um, civilian, you know, the, the armed forces have been brought in for bushfire and flood response. They need to understand the gender impacts of what are, what's going on there um, and be able to respond to local communities. This is not just about foreign cultures. It's about at home in Australia as well. Um and we need to have a, a, appropriate responses and understandings if we are going out to other situations. And when it comes to technology, there are also huge digital divides. Girls and women are impacted more if they lose access to internet 
because uh, all communications, because often that is how they are communicating and supporting each other. Often that's their way of participating in local economies. If they don't have a way to accept a payment, which is dependent on um, position navigation and timing satellites, every time you're using your watch or your phone or a card to make a payment, that's using satellites. If they lose access to that, their local economies fall apart which can often mean that there's no income for their families that they're supporting. If they lose access to that, they lose access to education. And in in many places, the only way they can access education is not through a formal schooling environment, or even if it is, they still need that that technology. So at any time in grey zone or conflict, these technologies are being targeted that has severe knock-on effects for girls and women in more and different ways than for boys and men. And, And those are, you know, generalizations, but we have evidence to demonstrate that. And I guess I should say a little bit about why those technologies would be um, compromised or attacked. I mean, I gave the example of Russia attacking this Viasat satellite, but it's that dual use um, uh, environment again is that it's really hard to identify whether something is a military or a civilian object in space. Often there is no distinction because they're providing those services both to military um, personnel and, and civilian personnel. Um, but the best way to compromise your adversary's military operations is to take out their eyes and ears and their eyes and ears are in space. That's where the communications are, their earth observation, their navigation, everything. If you can take them out even just temporarily by blinding or dazzling an Earth observation satellite and impacting intelligence gathering by um, cyber attacks or radio frequency interferences on communication satellites, then, then they can't talk and they can't hear each other really at the basic level. And so that's why militarily um, attacking space systems it has become so prevalent and that's not necessarily blowing things up. It's all these non-kinetic ways, but it's also why there are so many implications for civilians in these situations and kind of worsened implications for for, um, minority groups, but particularly for girls and women. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. I don't want to take us too much um, down this path, which is always a risk when you put um, two two lawyers in the room <laughs> together. But I was listening to you and and thinking about that fraught issue of not always being able to distinguish in any meaningful way whether something's a civilian ob- object or a military object. And of course, under international law and the laws of armed conflict, there's a legal obligation to distinguish between civilian and military objects in targeting decisions and so on and so forth. And that's why space sometimes challenges some of the existing legal frameworks we've got uh, in many ways, not, not just this one. 
I suppose um, there's lots of things being done um, to think about these things. And one of the things that's happening at an international level, and there are many, so please feel free to, to talk about uh, many and any of them. Um, but of course, at the moment, we've got um, the United Nations open-ended working group on reducing space threats, which I understand started in 2021. Is that right? Yeah, but it has a longer history. So um, there's there's been a deadlock around space arms control for decades. Uh, and for quite some time, the concern was about just the bigger countries because the, the greater powers have been the ones with the economic and technological wherewithal to access space. So, um, you know, China, the US and Russia for, for many decades, India, then of course, since 2019 or sort of late since the late two, uh, 2010s when it built a space program. Um, interestingly, at le- the, the, the Indians successfully launched an object into orbit for less than it cost Hollywood to make the movie Gravity. Special wow. effects cost more than the actual thing for the Indians. It's impressive. That's very impressive. Um, so the, so the, India is this rising power globally. They're also, also a rising space power. But I mentioned that commercialization factor. That's also impacting, um, you know, space uh, warfare or the way that space is used in warfare. And so arms control has been at this deadlock. Could I interrupt you there? Yeah. How is commercialization disrupting or changing the way that space is used for warfare? Um because, as I mentioned, there are more commercially owned satellites than government owned satellites. And commercial entities are developing these technologies better, faster and cheaper than governments are ever able to. And so they've been doing that for internet and TV broadcasting for, for years. In the last 10 years, they've been doing it for, um, you know, all kinds of internet and telecommunications, but also for things like space situational awareness, the ability to track what's in space, whether that's satellites or debris, um, whether it's figuring out this latest thing that China launched, is that just a satellite? Is it there to gather intelligence? Is it there to interrupt or interfere with our, our own satellites? Um, so these covert technologies, being able to track all of that, it's actually commercial companies providing that information and data much to a greater accuracy than any government programs are doing, or they're doing it in partnership with government programs like through um, US Space Command. Um, so they, so and, and in the launch sector as well, I mean, everyone's heard of SpaceX, but what SpaceX did was make launch cheaper and faster. They are launching every couple of weeks and government launch capabilities just aren't able to be that fast. And they're launching for commercial as well as government entities. And so this dual use comes back in again, right? Everything that's being launched, almost everything has a dual dual, use purpose or the potential for it. Um, So that's, that's been impacting um, questions in warfare. So you mentioned the laws of armed conflict. Under um, the Geneva Conventions um, uh, uh, and under customary international law as well, which means everyone is bound by it, even non-state actors, there is a cardinal obligation to distinguish between commercial, uh, sorry, civilian objects um, and uh, and military objectives. It is forbidden to target a civilian object. You cannot target a school or a hospital. We've seen that happen recently in Ukraine. Those are war crimes. They're unlawful. Now, the law doesn't stop it happening, but there's an ability to then respond to that war crime. Um but when we have these commercial and dual-use technologies in space, it not only is it really hard to identify, there might be times when something that is mostly civilian but also serves a military uh, objective can become a lawful target. It can fit the definition according to its nature, location, purpose and use. Um, so it might fall under that definition, but there's a further obligation to then consider what are the um, pro- what is, are the effects going to be proportionate to the military advantage gained? So if there are knock-on effects for civilians, 
if those are disproportionate, which is very quickly going to become the case, if people lose their ability to communicate with each other in a conflict situation, if it's impacting health systems or you know management of water and dams or you know, then then it's probably disproportionate. So it may be a lawfully target targetable object, but then the means of targeting it become very limited. This becomes really complicated in space. So the deadlocked around arms control was because it was focused on. Can we define what is a space weapon? China and Russia for years have really wanted to push to have a treaty preventing the placement of weapons in space. But how do we define what is a weapon? If you have a technology that can grab or interfere with um, a satellite, that might also have benign applications to get rid of space junk or to service a satellite that's broken down or needs refueling. And we need to do that to cope with, you know, what's going on in space. So it's hard to define when something's a weapon and something's not dual purpose rather than dual use. Um, and also the biggest threats are not in space. We're not talking about nukes in space. That's the one thing the Outer Space Treaty um, prohibits is the placement of nuclear weapons and we- weapons of mass destruction in space. The biggest threats are ground-based. You know, I've mentioned cyber and blinding and dazzling and interfering with radio frequencies. That's happening all the time. Disrupting human services. Yeah. Um, and and there are also four countries that have demonstrated ground-based missile capabilities to destroy a satellite in space, so China, the US, India and, and Russia. So there was a deadlock for years. It's been political. It's been because UN processes are slow and consensus decision-making just doesn't happen when these things are so politicised. So in 2020, the UK, who I still think are the world's leading space diplomats and they're a middle power and Australia should be taking leaves out of that book, they sponsored a resolution in the General Assembly. So they took it out of these consensus-based bodies like the the Committee on Disarmament and they said let's move it into the General Assembly, which is based on vote not consensus. And let's stop talking about weapons and defining weapons and arms control. Let's talk about behaviours. What's a responsible or irresponsible behaviour in space? Because we can probably come up with norms, rules and principles. And we also don't have to decide right away whether that has to be a treaty because that's been another politicised issue. The US has not wanted any part in binding treaties. China, Russia and all of its supporting countries have said the only way is a treaty. So now we're talking about just agreeing on some base norms, rules and principles. And since, so in 2022, they had their first two meetings. It was delayed by COVID as everything was. Um, During that time, they did really amazing work on just bringing in experts from around the world who were not representing countries' perspectives just to talk the delegates through everything we've just been discussing, Um, the technological implications, the legal implications, what what is the existing law that already applies? We already have some normal rules and principles that apply. Um, Where are the the tension points? Where are the disagreements? What that meant was, so they spent morning sessions doing that and afternoon sessions was just the delegates speaking. What it meant was it cut in half the time that the discussions could be bogged down in politicisation um, Russia's very effective at taking the floor for half an hour or longer and talking about Ukraine when actually what we want to talk about is, you know, yes, this implicates what's going on in Ukraine, but we want to talk about the space sector as a whole. It cut in half the time that that could happen. It also meant that delegates and countries that had been less familiar um, were educated. Everyone was on a on a, a shared kind of baseline of understanding. So when those discussions became politicised, the smaller nations and the middle powers were able to push back and say, we've just learned that's not the case. Let's focus on the facts. So now in 2023, we have two more meetings scheduled, one coming up in uh, the end of January, beginning of February, which is the first time the delegates are going to talk about can we actually start putting forward what might be some norms we can agree on. And then there'll be a final one at the end of, of this year. Um, and, and I, I suspect when I was speaking with the chair, who's done an amazing job of running this process, his hope is to come up with a handful 
five, maybe ten norms, rules and principles because that does have to be consensus-based and we're not they're not trying to reinvent the wheel. They're trying to just set some baselines. Um, I think one of them is highly likely to be a moratorium on these destructive anti-satellite missiles. Um, the US in the first of the open-ended working group meetings in 2022 announced uh, it was placing a moratorium. It was, it's never going to test, though, that capability again. Canada joined that same week. And since then, we've had nine countries, including Australia, stating we're never going to test that capability. Um, there was some concern by some saying, well, but are we are we limiting ourselves in developing a capability? What if other countries get it and we don't? You know, the kind of nuclear mad idea. Um but there are also laws of armed conflict which would pro- prohibit the use of something like that in, in times of war because it's creating debris and it is indiscriminate. So Disproportionate potentially. Exactly. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it would be unlawful anyway in times of war. So it's a very sensible thing to say we're not going to test a capability which de- which creates debris, which is a threat to all of the satellites we depend on. We're not going to test this really dumb thing mm-hmm. and we're going to look really good for making the commitment not Let's to not test it. <laughs> Yeah, I hadn't thought about um, the literacy aspect, actually. That's really interesting because, of course, we can't solve what we can't understand. And and despite how um, fraught uh, and complex some of these issues are, I personally can't help but feel some sense of optimism around human cooperation in space and our potential for. I mean, there are so many examples where things could have gone terribly wrong. And I'm often reminded of uh, the American astronaut he needed to come home from the International Space Station, I think early last year at the outset of the Ukrainian um, uh, conflict. And his only way home was on a Russian vessel and some of the Russian transportation that operates um, in relation to the International Space Station. And yet he got home. So there's this sort of extraordinary level of cooperation, even though at the same time it's incredibly fraught and there are probably some regulatory gaps and and need for reform and better understanding. So in your view, do you share that optimism or are you a bit more sceptical and and do you think this open-ended working group is the way forward or are there other things that we should be thinking about both at a domestic and international level? I absolutely share your optimism and I feel like I kind of have to, otherwise why am I doing what I do? <laughs> um, but but I do think, you know, it's kind of at the, um, can, like I guess the, the imaginings of space, there's always been this kind of it's, it's where humanity can go as a whole and there's all sorts of fraud issues related to that as well. But there is this kind of underlying um you know, societal connection to it, I guess, and cultural connection. Um, and, you know, the example you gave is one example for for years, for decades, the, the image of the International Space Station is, a, a, you know, proof of, of international cooperation. There's images of the Russian and American soldiers shaking hands and um, it, it's also become politicised during during the, the what's going on in Ukraine, but it but it keeps coming back as, a, you know, an avenue of cooperation. Um and I, and I think there's also, you know, this is where Australia could be doing so much more in the region. We're now at a, in a place where Senator Wong has, you know, we're talking about our, our um, Pacific family again and these nations who are our sovereign neighbours. Well, if we want to stabilise the region and support those nations, we should also be doing space capacity building with them. But that requires better space literacy at home as well. Mm. So it is a huge and, – and, it's you know you asked about whether I'm optimistic about the OEWG as well the open ended working group I'm enormously optimistic because more has been achieved in the last two years than in the last two decades by moving to talk about responsible behaviours the US I used to point out as a spoiler in arms and control for many years and their rhetoric ever since the Obama um, administration and then later with the uh, establishment of Space Force all of their military doctrines talked about 
dominance, predominance, you know, um, aggressive space defence. Like it was quite an escalatory language and that's what has set off China and Russia in response. There's been this security dilemma arising. Ever since the Responsible Behaviours Agenda came into play, the US has really shifted course and it's now everything. They have their five tenets of responsible behaviour coming out of the Pentagon. Everything the US Space Force is talking about is responsible behaviours. You know, the agendas of, of many nations around the world are now turning towards that. So I have some colleagues who say, it's not enough. We need to be looking at legally binding norms and instruments. I think the two can be complementary and I think this is a huge step forward in building that literacy and understanding about why space is so critical because you said it, you can't solve these problems unless you understand them. Mm. And I guess that's where um, the importance of space diplomacy can come in because, of course, we're no longer this sort of space trichotomy with Russia, China and the US. Space is burgeoning in other aspects, including our own. And, you know, in the Asia-Pacific and and the Pacific family, telecommunications are vital. I mean, you made the point about 50% of our climate change data being retrieved from space. These are all issues very close to home. And um, if you don't mind me asking, I have heard you um, call for, um, for want of a better word, a a space ambassador, an Australian space ambassador. Um, Is that the case and, and why? Yes, that was a policy paper that the National Security uh, College distributed um, two years ago, um, which, uh, you know, I'm not wedded to the idea necessarily of an ambassador. I've been talking to folks in DFAT about this exact question. uh, I think what I what I was I was talking with Catherine Manstead, who of course is an expert in cyber policy, uh, about these issues in space, and she said, "Oh, well, look at you know we have Ambassador Tobias Fekin, who's done amazing work domestically and internationally. We now have world leading international cyber policies. He's engaged with the private sector and the public sector. He's done that literacy building across all the stakeholders, and, and really Australia's been quite a lead globally in in this key issue. Um, and I said, "Well, that's an exact parallel for space. So if if we think that's as important for cyber, then we should think it's just as important for space. If that model of having an ambassador has worked, it should also work for space. And it also sends a message domestically because right now space within DFAT doesn't even appear on the org chart, right? It's embedded under security issues under someone whose title doesn't include space. And then their team is starting to grow internally, but it's too buried away and hidden away because historically that's kind of the only stake that Australia had in the game was was an arms control discussion, which were deadlocked. Um, but, but space has changed, the space che- sector has changed, space security has changed, and Australia is trying to assert itself as a serious space player. So whether or not that's an ambassador, I'm not wedded to it, but I think that's one model that could serve a lot of um, issues and concerns. Resourcing is one of them. If you have an ambassador, that person needs to be resourced and we need to be throwing a lot more knowledge and money and personnel at these issues. Um, So, I mean, you know, there's various other models you could think of. Really what I was trying to poke at was why we don't yet consider space to be across the whole of government. It's really the the National Security College delivered a course that was commissioned by Defence last year, which I um, co-designed and and delivered with the NSC here, that was aimed at the whole of government. I think we had 20 different government departments represented to really try and get SES to senior decision level, senior uh, decision makers within government across whole of government to understand why space is so critical globally and internationally, why it's so critical for Australians and for Australia and what the opportunities are for us as a middle space power. Um, and so I hope that we can continue those conversations with what the NSS is doing with uh, executive education um, ongoingly this year. Yeah, no, it's always great to have you involved in those too, Cassandra. And I guess the point there is that space is 
central to security, but it's so much more than that. And, and that's a conversation that we can have with Australians and beyond and with our neighbours. So, Cassandra, thank you so much for being here today. It's always um, a privilege to talk space with you. You're a wealth of knowledge and, and passion on the topic and we're very lucky to have you. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Danielle. 